Welcome to the 24-7 Prayer Podcast. My name is Hannah Heather. And my name is Brian Heasley. And we are so glad that you have joined us today. And we, our special guest today is the amazing and inimitable Jill Weber. Um, and she is going to be sharing with us all about um, monastic orders, Brian. I know. She is the global convener of the Order of the Mustard Seed. That's a mouthful. Definitely sounds like it's from the Lord of the Rings or the Knights of the Round Table. Love it. Love it. So today with Jill, we're going to be diving into the topic of monasticism and what role could a new monasticism play for the church in the world today. I think it was Bonhoeffer who said the restoration of the church will surely come from a form of new monasticism. So we're going to, we're going to, delve into what that might mean today and I think for me one of the most striking moments in this interview is when we asked Jill the question didn't we of like does this work yeah. <laughs> like, does this actually help you in your walk with Jesus and a part of her answer she said I, I had this moment where I looked back and I wondered what kind of disciple was I before this and that just really struck me mm. as a very poignant question of you know, whether it's new monasticism or something else, like what is it within our own spiritualities that, you know, if we look back on, we could say, what sort of a disciple would I be without this? I'm I'm uh, just loving the idea that we can explore some of those areas where I have questions about monasticism and new monasticism where, you know, is this weird? Is this insular? Yeah. Jill answers those questions, which is great. Mm. So have a listen and we hope you enjoy. So Hannah, it's really exciting to be here today with uh, with Jill Weber. Yay, hey, welcome Jill. <laughs> nice to be with you. So Jill, tell us who you are and what you do. Ah, yes. Um, yeah, my name's Jill. I am, oh, I'm a human, uh, a mere mortal. That's, that's I am, um, I... I've been married a long time to my husband, Kirk, who's a jazz drummer. I'm a mum of a 30-year-old. I'm entirely too young to be a mother of a 30-year-old. Um, oh, my goodness. And I have been dabbling in and experimenting in new monasticism now for almost 25 years. Wow. Um, we could talk more about that in, you know, in a little bit, what that is. Mostly, um, I pray and I make friends, really, is what I do. But, but in terms of job titles... Currently, I'm, I'm helping develop something called Waverly Abbey, which is where this is this crazy experiment of, of can, we, can we shape a new abbey for a new generation? And so I'm helping with the prayer community there. We'll talk more about that, too. I, uh, I have this horrible title, Brian. I can't stand the title, but <laughs> it's a terrible title. I am the global convener <laughs> of the Order of the Mustard Seed, which just sounds really bizarre. Um, the global convener. The global of convener, the, only because we were not intergalactic yet. <laughs> I think and, it'd be better, Jill, if you were called the global overlord. The overlord, <laughs> yeah, we could totally do that. But um, actually, convener is a good word because it really means I just help people connect with each other. Um, and so, the order of the mustard seed is um, something called a lay ecumenical missional order, which is a lot of words that may or may not mean anything, but mostly it's it's a group of people who in their regular everyday lives are trying to have some shared commitments, some shared spiritual practices that help them become more like Jesus. And I just help them with that. Wow. Yeah. So that's what I do. I work with 24-7 prayer, um, just helping support prayer communities in the movement. 
Um, and then I also work at um, MAS Road Church in Guilford and uh, oversee prayer and spiritual formation there in that local congregational setting. Jill, the um, the order of the mustard seed, this sounds like something out of Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, <laughs> Knights of the Round Table. Is it anything like any of those things? It's like a weird hippie cult. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. actually it's... Um, the Order of the Mustard Seed, it's a missional and monastic order. And, and what that means is uh, that it's, it's literally a, a community of shared practice. And what I mean by that is um, for those of us who are trying to grow and become more like Jesus, uh, it can be easier to do that in community. And it can be easier to do that in community with a particular focus. And it's even easier to do that in community with a particular focus with some shared commitments. So say, for example, if I, I want to learn how to go from couch to 5K, I could sort of do that by myself and stumble my way forward. Or I could get a couch to 5K app and get a little bit of structure and system that would help me get off my butt <laughs> and off of the couch and on the road and running. Um, or I could get a couch to 5K app and have a bunch of friends who are doing the same thing who all show up at my door and we go running together. Mm. And so the, the odds of my actually getting to my goal of running that 5K are much higher if I've got a little bit of supportive structure, a little bit of supported community. And that's really what it, this missional monastic order is. So we um, kind of find our roots in history. There was an original order back in um, 1800s. And uh, basically, it was a student movement. It was a guy named um, Zinzendorf who was just starting university, and he saw the lifestyle of the other students, and he was like, he just thought, I don't know how I could follow Jesus in this space. So he gathered a group of his friends together, and they they created a community of shared practice. So they had some shared commitments, some shared spiritual practices that just helped them become more like Jesus. And so that he kind of did that throughout his life, and um, it had some extraordinary results, uh, not only for him personally, but in communities that he built. Mm. But then after he died, we didn't see the order of the mustard seed so much in history. It kind of slipped away into the mist of history. In 2005, some folks in 24-7 prayer said, you know what, I wonder if this is actually something that might be helpful for us today. I remember that. I was around when that happened. Yeah, February 11th, 2005. And so just... I mean, 24-7 as a movement has been so informed and inspired by the Zinzendorf story because, of course, he went on because of those commitments that he'd made, which were to be true to Christ, be kind to people, take the gospel to the nations. He gathered his community, his local community, and and they became a larger community of shared practice. And they're like, why don't we try praying for 24-7? And they just organized themselves around that started a prayer meeting that went literally over a hundred years of praying 24 seven. Wow. Amazing. And they did it because they had some, they were a community of shared practice. So they had some commitments with each other. They had, they shaped their common life together and they had this goal of becoming more like Jesus. And um, yeah, it just made a huge difference in church history. 24 seven was totally inspired by that, which has now launched us into going on 25 years of night and day prayer ourselves, which mm-hmm. is just mm-hmm. so blows my little brain. But um, <laughs> the, in 2005, they were like, okay, you know what? Order the Mustard Seed helped Zinzendorf and his folks live missionally, help them live uh, with Jesus, encounter with Jesus right at the center of who they were. Could this help us? And yeah. so it's just a big experiment, really. Mm-hmm. And, and so they, a bunch of folks took vows to join 
a modern day version of the order of the mustard seed and then really quietly just tried it for 10 years. Um, just, just got on with it and just said, okay, this is an experiment. I don't know if this will help us become more like Jesus or not. And after 10 years, it became evident that it was a really, really helpful, helpful discipleship framework. And, um, and then at that juncture, we began to uh, organize and grow the order. Wow. And, and so currently we've got about 500 members of the order. Uh, Jill, I've got a couple of questions just from what you've been saying. Yeah, yeah. One, Hannah, have you ever done a couch to 5K? <laughs> Um, do I look like I? <laughs> yeah, you do. Listen, I'm you not, look like you could totally do it. I'm not going to get I into... don't know whether that's an offensive question or a compliment. Or somewhere in between, probably. I was just, uh, um, just wanted to explore your, your fitness goals. I haven't <laughs> done a going to five. I have done a 5K, but not, not post-children, I'm afraid. The post-children phase is a little less fit, I sadly. think the last time I ran a 5K was before I had knee surgery when I was 27, <laughs> which was... A long time ago. Well, knee surgery is a pretty good excuse. Uh, yeah, it's not good for yeah, running. I could do I could do a couch to five meter, which I think is the distance <laughs> from my couch to my fridge. So I'm pretty good yeah. at that one. Oh, Jill, I'm an expert at that. That's, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm fantastic on that one. Uh, Jill, just as well, you talk about Order of the Mustard Seed and it's and uh, Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf and his influence upon twenty four seven prayer. I'm the international prayer director for 24-7 Prayer. That's not a flex. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's a bit of a flex. Isn't but it? are you an intergalactic? I mean, this is what I want to um, know. No, not yet. But, <laughs> but I'm not actually a member of the Order of the Mustard Seed. So can you tell me how that works? Because it, it isn't compulsory. Oh, yeah, totally not. Actually, I, I mean, probably you could just naturally live that lifestyle on your own, Brian, with without the additional support of you know, the a rule of life and, and that, you know, the shared community of practice. Although, I mean, being part of 24-7, we're all on that journey together, aren't we? So, mm. yeah, I think we find there are some of us who find practicing the way of Jesus, you know, they're just doing really well. And, you know, that maybe they're part of a church and they've got their Bible study group and whatever that is. And, and it just works well for them. They feel like, yeah, you know what, I've been able to, with the help of God, craft a holistic lifestyle that helps me become more like Jesus. Mm. But then there's others of us who struggle more and are like, you know what? I think I would do better um, if I had that additional structure, if I had the additional structure of some shared commitments, some shared spiritual practices. Um, and, mm. uh, and so for me, actually, the OMS is for those who are struggling more, who are sure. just... Um, uh, would benefit from that additional level of support and intentionality. I think for me, um, I don't know about you, but my life can go in a million directions. And so mm. I just, I just know that I need that, that um, those commitments and that community that just brings me back again and again and again to the heart of the gospel, you Amazing. know, to love God and to love others. So um, yeah. Yeah. If, I mean, if you could do it without being part of an order, which most of the people on the planet can, Fantastic. I actually think that's a really helpful point of clarity because I know I've certainly heard people say, oh, well, um, you know, well, could you remind us, Jill, what are the, the sort of central vows? Yeah, so our vows are to be true to Christ, kind to people, and take the gospel to the nations. Love them. I actually would love to change it and saying gospel to the nations and to my neighbors, but uh, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to do that. But oh, um, Controversial, Jill. Yeah, controversial. So, so essentially... That's the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. Right. Like that's Christianity 101. Yeah. And actually, every monastic order in history 
has been shaped to help people live into the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. But, but every different missional or monastic order has a particular emphasis on how they might do that. And for us, because we were exploring this within the context of the 24-7 movement, which already had its heart, at its heart, prayer and creativity and hospitality and mission and justice and learning, we just said, well, actually, you know, those three things, being true to Christ, kind to people, taking the gospel to the nations, we're actually going to use those six practices that are already woven into the life of our global movement and and focus on them in a, in a particular way to help us become more like Jesus. Jill, can I dig in a little bit on some of this? You know me, you know, I always have questions, but some would say that, uh, and I've heard this, that monastic orders are introverted. I guess I've always had that kind of picture of a monk withdrawing from the world into a monastery somewhere in Ireland. It's actually quite appealing to me at times and just, <laughs> you know, lying on a bed and reading scripture and basically gardening and stuff like that. And it's an introverted pastime. How, how, how does one not only, obviously you're saying true to Christ, gospel to the nation, and we get it, but how do... How do we portray this kind of like, this isn't weird? Well, I think that, first of all, it's, I mean, if you look at the history of monastic and missional movements in the tradition of the church since the third century, you sort of, they were grouped in two kind of big categories. And uh, and I, I talk about it when I, when I talk about nuns, I have, I, I think just, I, for me, I've got some friends back at home in Canada who are nuns, and I think everybody would benefit from having a friend who's a nun. <laughs> everybody, a everybody needs a nun. Everybody needs a nun. Yeah, absolutely. But, <laughs> bit, bit but sound I learned, of music. I learned there were two kinds of nuns. One was was what you were describing, and they would be called cloistered nuns. So they their main job is prayer, and so they're kind of in their convents or in their monastery and gardening and and all of that and praying. Uh, so that's number one. And then there's what they would call apostolic nuns, which is kind of fancy name, but I call those the getting things done nuns. <laughs> and they're the ones who, yes, they've got rhythms of prayer that they shape their life around, but they are missionaries and hospital administrators and founders of immigrant women's centers and care for refugees. And so, um, so you think about some famous sort of monastic people, Mother Teresa, right? She mm-hmm. wasn't hiding in a garden. Like she was on the front line caring yeah. for the poorest of the poor and finding the presence of Jesus in that place. And so in the history of the church, you see this, you know, these two broad categories of people called to, and the phrase they use, um, a tricky phrase, a consecrated life, but but a life that we've decided on some shared, shared um, uh, commitments and some shared practices. Wow. So some of them are mostly prayer. And lots of others um, are, are prayer plus, you know, how do we go meet Jesus on the front lines of people's lives? Where, how do we go to the poorest of the poor? And I think we see that with Zinzendorf and the Moravian movement. Mm, they weren't yeah. setting up little, you know, garden huts. They were going to the ends of the earth to preach the good news of Jesus. But they were, they were anchored by this night and day prayer call that was on their Lives and so certainly in the twenty four seven movement, um, we've seen expressions of of this true to Christ kind of people gospel for the nations. And so, you know, we've got communities down in 
Cape Town, South Africa, the community that I led back in Canada, I led a, a sort of a new monastic community for 17 years and we moved into a poor neighborhood in our city. The whole thing was an exploration of how do we have rhythms of life, but then explore what does it look like to be the loving presence of a people of prayer, right, incarnated into this neighborhood. In one of our other uh, podcasts, we're talking to Pete Portal and the guys at Manenberg. Yeah. But Jill, could you, uh, what is the interface then between the monastic and the world? What did it look like in Hamilton? Can, can you like... Yeah. Take take that from theory and tell me what it actually what does it look like in in practice? I mean, I, I'm always bewildered that monks brew beer for, for one thing. <laughs> well, I'm not totally bewildered because I enjoy the the fruit of their labor, but obviously that was to interface with the world on one level and and make a sustainable economy. But yep. w- what does it look like, say, in Hamilton? Or you know, give me give me a little bit more. So if, if someone here was listening, thinking it sounds great in my head, but what does it look like in reality? Just to preface that, I actually call new monasticism the great experiment. So Mm. all we're doing is we're taking a look at some of the historical monastic principles and practices and trying to sort of drag them into the future, say, is any of this relevant? Does any of this help us to become more like Jesus? Does any of this help us to bring the gospel to our communities? And so we, back in Hamilton in Canada for 17 years, that's still continuing. I think they're, on, they're coming on to, they started in 2001. So that was our exploration. And so it looked like lots of things. It looked like we created a, a prayer room, uh, a storefront kind of level prayer room. It was in the basement of a social enterprise cafe right in one of the poorest parts of our neighborhood, right in the red light district. So if I actually was standing outside of the cafe John's in cars would slow down and be like, yeah, no, no, not for sale. Thanks. <laughs> you know, they drive off. So we were, were right in the heart of the sex trade. I, I, sorry, did you just tell me you were mistaken for someone who worked I, as a was, prostitute? I was a few times. I was just like awkward. And um, wow. Yeah. So right. You know, that was the neighborhood and the local church that met in the cafe that had um, people uh, who lived in that neighborhood who were living mostly in single residence occupancy people involved in the sex trade, people like for me, normal church was people coming stoned or high to church. <laughs> it was just normal. And, and just, just wow. building friendships and relationships with them. So, so we had that. So we helped a local church in that area, in the cafe. We were part of the life of the cafe throughout the week. We had a prayer center in the basement of the cafe. A bunch of us actually moved right into the neighborhood because we didn't want to figure out how to love the poor from afar. We wanted to be right mm. there. And so my husband and I self, myself had a community house where we, um, we lived with up, anywhere up to five or six other adults. And it was just this experiment in radical hospitality. And so uh, we, always, we would, we would um, make friends in the neighborhood. And we always had a community dinner every Tuesday night for years and years and years, like eight years. We called it Spaghetti Tuesday. And, um, uh, and we would make friends in the neighborhood and invite them over for supper. And we'd have anywhere between five and 35 people, depending on the night. And for me, it was actually my favorite, favorite memories of being in Hamilton and felt most like the kingdom of God because the people around the table, some of them were like super clean cut Dutch Christian reform students from the local Christian university and other people who were like ex or possibly ex addicts, you know, who used to live in our community house before we got our hands on it and when it was a crack house. And, um, and we just, we shared the family table and I absolutely loved that. And it just felt most like this is what the kingdom of God 
looks like. We were given a uh, a moving truck. We call you guys would call it a lorry, I guess, um, but we would call it a moving van in Canada, and we turn it into a pop up prayer room uh, in the back of the truck and put like carpets down and big pillows and. We put paper all on the walls and had musical instruments and we parked it right in a high kind of footfall area right behind a, a youth center that we worked with that worked with gang related youth and, um, and put just this little folding sign outside of the truck saying, mm-hmm. do you need prayer? And so every July, first thing in the morning till late at night, we would be there at the truck um, praying for people. We were astonished how many people, mostly unchurched. Uh, wanted prayer and and yeah I, again so many stories so many memories I think one of my favorite ones is there was a woman who came by one day and we were handing out water to it's July it was hot and she brought her dog and her dog was really hot and so I poured water on top of her dog at her request but then she showed up at church on Sunday and she was like you should go to the prayer truck she said they baptize dogs there <laughs> <laughs> so that's fun. so Jill you're telling me you were mistaken as a prostitute you <laughs> baptized a dog baptized dogs yeah, uh, yeah. you you used to live in this community doing spaghetti Tuesdays in this, a crack house in an ex crack house yes and and the the favorite spaghetti Tuesday every year it was our Christmas tradition we did spaghetti Tuesday elf edition and so we would supply the maple syrup, but people had to bring their own candy to put on the spaghetti. And, uh, and, then, and then to top it off, we would all brought big bottles of Coke and would have belching contests. Amazing. <laughs> so that was our Christmas tradition. Jill, are we talking about sweet things on spaghetti? Haven't you seen the movie, Brian? No, I've never seen it. Oh, 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 yeah. No. no. Tracy made me fig spaghetti the other night with figs in it, and I found it quite disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is full on maple syrup, Smarties, oh, okay. chocolate chips, marshmallows. Yeah, and actually spaghetti with maple syrup on it tastes a little bit like French toast. So that's not too, too disgusting. So should I watch Elf? Oh, yeah, you totally should watch Elf. I think we should stop everything immediately so that you can go and do that, Brian. <laughs> wow. Yes. But Jill, I, I think that's just so, it's so beautiful, isn't it? Because that, you know, Jesus comes to us in the shape of our lives. And yeah. so that you would be mistaken for a prostitute, you know, you're coming to people in the shape of their lives. And that, you know, it just, it really reminds me of Jesus in the Gospels when people would say, oh, you know, what's he doing eating with these people and being in this place? And it just seems to me that that's the kinds of questions that people should be asking, you know, whether they're literally stopping their cars when we're standing there or not. We should be, you know, living lives that are under scrutiny and under questions from, you know, more the more civilised parts of society. I, I, think. Once, I once heard someone say, uh, when was the last time your reputation was called into account because of the company you keep? Mm. Wow. Can I ask, Jill, because I think, I mean, I just some of those stories, all of that was so beautiful. Um, I'm going to ask, I think in a way, the answer to this question should be obvious, but I'm, I'm genuinely curious to know. So you shared about, you know, the, the, the vows of the OMS and the goal of it is that people would be, you know, following Jesus more closely and their, their spiritual lives would be richer and that they would be reaching the nations or, as you would like to say, the neighbours, um, I guess both. Um, does it work? Does it work? I Do you know what? I, I think for me and for many members of the Order, uh, we've got an OMS podcast, which you can find on the Order of the Mustard Seed website, where I interview members of the Order and say, 
you know, how's it working for you? How is oh, it? Oh my goodness, helpful? you've just come on a podcast and advertised your own podcast. I just did that. Did you catch that? That's pretty good. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, so good. And, Carry on, um, sorry. No, it's fine. And I interviewed them and asked them questions and basically asked that question, like, did it work? You know, and so I interviewed my friend Gwen, where who's a stay-at-home mom with five kids. And we just said, okay, how does this work for you? And she talked about how she's using her dinner table as a place of radical hospitality and discipleship and building this kind of ethos into the life of her family and her children. And she would say, yeah, you know, it, it works for me. Um, yeah. And, and so story after story of people, uh, I have a friend who's a member of the OMS, uh, had a season as a politician and as a politician, the hardest of the vows was to be kind because wow. the political you know, sphere is not a kind place mm. to be. Mm. And so how to live as a person of kindness in the midst of that kind of environment is a bold witness to the power yeah. of the gospel. And, and I think for me, honestly, I had a point, you guys, where it was probably about two to three years in of this community living and living in this neighborhood and, and all the stuff that we did made me look back and go, like, what kind of disciple was I before this? <laughs> wow. You know, it was just like, wow, you know, it, it was really challenging for me. And I just thought, whoa, I had been so comfy, cozy. And um, but to, to actually I think the thing about that I love about, you know, being part of an order like this is you give God permission when you're like, OK, I am taking a vow. I'm making a commitment in the presence of other people yeah. to give myself wholeheartedly to the gospel. Um, God takes you up on that. You are giving him permission. So say, for example, one of my vows was to take the gospel to the nations, which I was like, yeah, that'd be great. You know, but I <laughs> loved my city in Hamilton and uh, loved the work that I was doing there. I had been there for 17 years, was starting to see real transformation around me in the lives of our neighborhood and our leaders. But I made the mistake of making a vow to take the gospel to the nations. Wow, yeah. And then all of a sudden I got this invitation from God saying, Do you want can you leave everything you've built here? All of your friends that you would take a bullet for, even your daughter, which was the hardest thing. Mm. And will you will you go to the nations? Will you relocate? Will you come to the UK? Will you start to build this kind of international center? here at Waverly Abbey to, to raise up or create an incubator that raises up gospel champions that will get spat out to all the nations. You know, are you willing to do that? And I realized that like, oh crap, I had already made a vow. <laughs> I had already said yeah. to God beforehand that I would be willing. And then he, then he, um, you know, uh, you know, he's like, all right, put your money where your mouth is, Jill. If you said you're up for it, then let's do this. And and that was just really challenging for me. Okay, a thought I have: I'm practicing all these practices. I'm you know running my life to rule of life, and I'm I then turn up to normal church on a Sunday morning. How do I? And I look around and I see that people aren't. How do I avoid spiritual superiority? Oh, good question. Ah, uh, you know what? For me, one of the the best things that I do to avoid spiritual superiority. As I spend every day, part of my rule of life is spending some time of self-reflection every day and saying, Lord, have I got any sin in me? <laughs> and actually, I really enjoy um, uh, the night prayers, Hannah. Enjoy the night <laughs> prayers, Selectio, because it helps me do an examine every day. Mm -hmm. and, um, and 
it becomes very evident to me if I make a practice of self-reflection as part of my spiritual practices that I am keenly and painfully aware of how we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, and I'm screwing up all the time. Just just a minute there. Uh, Hannah, explain to me what an examine is if you do the night prayers on our Lectio 365 <laughs> Ooh. We're advertising all kinds of things today. Oh, yeah. Here like, we are. This is really bad, isn't it? <laughs> Next, I'm going to be advertising my book and your book. and Plugging uh... so many other resources. Um <laughs> Well, yes, what Jill is referring to is, if you haven't come across the Lectio 365 app, is um, the idea behind Lectio is it's a way of, it comes from um, the Lectio Divina, which was kind of a style of reading the scripture in a slightly less, um, I guess, intellectual capacity and slightly more heart-led approach to reading the scripture and more to the point, letting the scripture read you. Um so that's the idea behind Lectio. So if you download the app, you can see you can do morning prayers or night prayers. So in the morning, there is like it's a little bit more devotionally mm-hmm. focused, a little bit more of like a thought for the day um, to take into your day with you. And then in the night prayers, yeah, we based it on the, the ancient practice of examine, which so the idea is that it's sort of looking into the rear view mirror back on your day and essentially asking God where he was in the day you know what where you were in the day like like Jill said like where have I actually not been that true to Christ in this day um but it's beautifully redemptive because it's then you know you go through that moment of kind of repentance and remembering where you've maybe you know you've not been so happy with how you've been but you bring that to God and there's a beautiful moment of kind of receiving his grace and then you you go to to sleep and you go you like lay down to rest having you know received refresh the grace of God over your day so it's a helpful practice because I think you know we can get so I don't know busy and you know you're in the flurry of everyday life and and you can get quite abstract about some of this stuff can't you like oh yeah we're all we're all sinners or oh yeah God's been with me in my day but actually, when you sit down to take five minutes to think, oh, where was God with me in my day? You know, it actually lands that moment for you. Mm-hmm. And you kind of, for me, it definitely helps um, me to remember that God is active and present in my life. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes you, you, you can, you can you know he's there, but until you articulate it, you don't really notice. So for me, it's like a really helpful practice of noticing and saying, okay, I can see that God was there. And then also just like Jill said, you know, you remember your own fall in this. Gives me Um, uh, guilt-free sleep. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and just acknowledging just our own brokenness and humanity and and just knowing that, Mm. you know what, this is the beauty of the gospel. Right, we can come to him every day, going, "Oh, Jesus, I'm sorry, did it again." Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then, yeah. and every day he forgives. I mean, this is the beauty. This is the good news, right? Mm. That that all of our brokenness, all of our worst choices, all of our decisions, you know, that that hurt ourselves and others, have all been dealt with on the cross mm. by the, you know the death and yes. the resurrection of Jesus. Fantastic. It's just astonishing for me to be able to live in that freedom to just kind of lay it down. And then, and so consequently, if I'm just going, okay, here, here I am again, God, you know, and warts and all. And then, so then who am I to look at somebody else who's in an order or out of an order or, you know, whatever, and and look down my nose at them and go, well, I'm better than. So, um, 
Yeah, you know, when I think about the earliest expressions of monasticism, you know, the Desert Fathers in Egypt, sort of 300 um, AD, you look at the sayings of the Desert Fathers, and they were so um, clear that that they were not judging each other, Yeah, that they were not, you know, they refused to. They're like, you know what, God is people's judge, and I'm, I'm just keenly aware of my own frailty right. and my desperate need for God to mm-hmm. be with me and to transform me and make me new. And uh, yeah, I think, I think that really helps me at least. And, and Jill, as your friends, we, we would echo that we see that in your life very clearly. So Absolutely. thank you for modeling that so well. One of the things that we've been thinking about is we're hearing a lot these days about awakening and, you know, we, we are contending for the next great awakening. There are people all around the world praying for revival or looking for awakening. What would you say uh, a spiritual awakening would look like in your context? <laughs> well, I, I think the thing that, that gets me up in the morning, I, the, my favorite definition of awakening or revival is that revival is God consciousness. You know, it's that, mm, and we we see that in good. histories of revivals in various ways, and and I think that um, if we can uh, live uh, attentive and responsive to the presence and the activity of God, we are awakened people, <laughs> and we can awaken others, and so. Um, you know, so we, we think about revival. I mean, I was part of the Toronto Blessing. In, wow. In, oh, yeah, did, yeah. Did you oh, fall over? Oh, yeah, all kinds of stuff. And you laugh and do all of that? I did it driving home from the, the meetings, completely drunk in the spirit. Like, if I got pulled over by the cops, I would have been in trouble. And well, you would have been clear on a tox report. <laughs> yeah, but I couldn't have walked in a straight line, you know. So, um, yeah, no, I was in the thick of all of that for, for a lot of years. And so you're not just like, you're not like some sort of Anglican, Catholic, hippie, monk. You've actually got some charismatic roots in there. Oh, yeah, no, I could swing from the chandeliers with the rest of them. So um, okay. I actually call myself a Presby Anglo-Baptic Catholic hostel. So, um, and uh, just because I love the whole body and it's just a, just a fantastic banquet to feast from. Mm. Uh, oh, I lost my train of thought. Oh, awakening. So I've seen that. I've seen like, just, I've seen been in a room and all of a sudden this kind of manifest presence of the Lord just drops everyone to the ground. And, you know, I've seen all of that for a lot of years and, you know, and it's great to have that, this kind of moments and meetings, but what I'm really, really interested in is how do we cultivate a lifestyle that makes room for awakening? Right. And, And so my longing and my desire is how do we help everybody in their ordinary lives Yeah, be attentive to and responsive to the presence and the activity of God. And so being attentive to solitude, silence, Sabbath, you know, meditating on the scriptures, um, noticing the presence of Jesus in each other, even in the in conversation, just having right. eyes and heart open that Jesus is with us all the time throughout our day. So there's one piece, but then the second piece is responsive to the heart that's preset to yes. And the thing I say over and over again, it's like, okay, God, the answer is yes. Now, what's the question? <laughs> I like that. Right? And if we can live that way, you know, everything's going to change. And if we could train a whole generation to live that way, you know what? Um, yeah, we're, we're going to see all kinds of, of, of individual and community and national, international transformation. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Amazing. I think sometimes God must just 
smile at the ignorance of our yeses. <laughs> yeah, if we only knew. <laughs> yeah, if, if you kind of really thought when you when you said yes to him for salvation, that's one thing. But when you said yes to him for here, Lord, take my life, I I just picture him chuckling as if to say, "Okay, I'll do that." And then he takes us on these. I think it was Helen Keller who said, "Life is either a daring adventure or nothing." And I think when we say yes to God, oh, yes. He takes us on these daring, daring adventures, adventures, which is beautiful. Mm, love that. I love that. True. So true. I would say everything in the last 25 years of my life has been that, living <laughs> out the daring adventure. Wow. Beautiful, Jill. Um, we're asking everyone this question. Um, what one experience of prayer will you never forget? My probably most, most memorable prayer meeting was my very first prayer meeting where I was 14 years old and I was at a summer camp and they sent us outside into the woods off on their own. Um, and I wasn't a believer. I didn't know God at all. And they said, go find somewhere by yourself and pray. So I went outside, I sat under a tree and it was sort of dusky, dark, and I had no idea how to pray. I'd learned the Lord's Prayer at school, so we recited that back in the day when you could still do that. So I just <laughs> I did what felt very logical for me at the moment. I looked up because I figured if there was a God, mm -hmm. he was probably up, you know. <laughs> and, and I just said, hi, I'm Jill. And in that moment, there was this tangible sense of an invisible other, some kind of presence there with me under the tree and it wasn't it didn't feel scary it didn't feel like malevolent but just there was uh, there was somebody there with me under mm -hmm. the tree that I couldn't see so then I did what every sensible teenager does when they meet invisible beings in the dark I ran back to my to my cabin um, <laughs> and the next day they shared the gospel with us and invited us to become disciples of Jesus and I immediately responded because I'm like well duh I can only imagine that God is the only invisible person around so and evidently he started a conversation in a relationship with me last night so at the very least it would be impolite not to <laughs> respond mm. and and so for that I, I think for me that's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about 24 7 prayer about creating prayer rooms why I'm so passionate about the order of the mustard seed and and what we're building here at Waverly Abbey because I think if we can create spaces and invite people anybody whether they know God or not into that space, and if we can incite them to start a conversation, to say, hi, I'm Brian, or hi, I'm Hannah, hmm. anything can happen. Yeah, oh, that's so beautiful. Jill, uh, thank you for saying yes to the invisible other. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for your unrehearsed life that just seems to model a lifestyle that is responsive to the leading of the spirit thank yeah. you for jumping into that metaphorical coracle <laughs> and ending up on these shores it's been an absolute joy to listen to you this morning so thank you for your time we really appreciate it oh thanks for the opportunity you guys thank you for listening to the 24 7 prayer podcast if you'd like to find out more about our work, please do visit 247prayer.com. 